0: I think that's the biggest thing. You don't want to slam someone over the head with something that comes out of left field and have them think like, wait, what? It should make sense when you see the twist and it should be like, oh, I didn't even think about that as a possible solution or reason for why this is happening. But again, with this prologue, we know there's something going on in the lake. We know that there's something that's happening deep in the lake. We know that bad things happen in the lake. Mm -hmm. And because it's a lake, it's not a human thing. So that makes perfect sense once we learn what the twist is.
1: Hey there, welcome back to another episode of Flip Match, a podcast made to help writers find The best literary agent and business partner for their writing career. I'm Abigail Perry, a book coach and certified developmental editor who is eager to help you learn how to blend business with passion. To do this, I focus on episodes that help you understand the literary agent research process, the submission process, the publishing industry, and the writing craft. For today, we're going to dive into craft once again with a first chapter deep dive analysis, this time looking at the house across the lake by Riley Sager. I'm really excited to bring on my guest who's going to analyze The House Across the Lake with me. Her name is Samantha Skull. In addition to being an author accelerator certified book coach who specializes in coaching mystery, thriller, and suspense authors, Sam is also an agent and thriller author, and she's currently working on her own debut, a serial killer thriller. She is the 2023 co-director of Pitchfest, the agent pitching event at Thriller Fest, International Thriller Writers or ITW's annual writing conference, and Sam as a frequent volunteer mentor for the Women's Fiction Writers Association or WFWA. As well as being an enthusiast of homemade sourdough and cheese of all kinds, she adores scary stories that keep her up at night, kayaking on calm water, hiking on well-maintained trails, and good red wine. Samantha is a huge fan of hashtag bookstagram and talks about her favorite books on at author Samantha Skoll, and I will include Samantha's website and her social media in the show notes. With that great bio, I am so excited to introduce to you now Sam, and here we go into our first chapter, Deep Dive Analysis of The House Across the Lake by Riley Sager. Hi, Sam. Thanks so much for joining me for a deep dive analysis. I'm really excited. Off podcast was talking to Sam about the ho- the house across the lake has been a story that I have paid attention to since its release, but actually I've never read myself. So I was really excited because this is one I wanted to read. And of course, now this first chapter has me hooked. So you've read the whole story. I have only read the beginning. It will be fun to compare what we're seeing with this first chapter and how it works. Before we do that, I'd love to hear about you, Sam, because you are here with us today. You are a book coach and you actually specialize in mystery, thriller, suspense. So share your
0: expertise with us because I'm really excited to do this with you. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much, Abigail. Yeah, big, big fan of Riley Sager and The House Across the Lake. It's one of his best, I think. And in terms of what I do, I focus on mystery thriller and suspense, the twist development, the red herrings. It, it's all just a big puzzle to get shoved together. And it's where I just adore spending all of my time. So those are the kinds of writers that I get in my practice. And we just have a great time brainstorming. That's mostly what our calls end up being about.
1: Is Riley Sager one of your favorite mystery thriller writers? Yeah, huge
0: yeah. fan of his. I actually got to meet him last year at Thriller Fest How very cool. briefly. And I was just... I, I couldn't even speak. I was like, so was it oh, everything God, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's just the nicest and so normal. You know, most thriller writers are really normal, amazing people because I think we get our of darkness on the pages. So, yeah, yeah, it's just a blast.
1: Absolutely. Now, you mentioned that you think that this is one of his best. And you actually, when we were deciding what book are we going to analyze, you picked this. So I would love to hear why this story in particular. What grabbed your attention?
0: The House Across the Lake is chock full of twists and red herrings and things that you don't see coming. He is a master of misdirection, which I adore. And as you said, I picked this. So when I went back through for this podcast and reread it with that in mind, it's just amazing to see all the places where we're deliberately misleading the reader in terms of what we want them to what he wants them to think. I just think it's a perfect teaching mechanism for all of this. And I'm really excited to talk through it.
1: Me too. And something that I don't specialize in thrillers, but I really like thrillers and I really like mystery and crime. And I've noticed more and more of the stories that I read, my favorites have some sort of crime, mystery, thriller aspect to it, even if it's not what I call the content genre, even if it's not the main genre. There's a really strong subplot or way of twisting and turning. And I think part of that is because of something you just pulled out the importance of misdirection and red herrings. And that is crucial in these types of stories. It's a huge convention. You absolutely need these in your stories. And you think that Riley Sager is a master of it. So could you just shed light on what do you mean when you say red herring, misdirection, and why are they so important
0: in particular for this type of story? Uh, Such a good question. Thank you for asking it. So the biggest thing about writing, and I'll include Ministry of Thriller Suspense, MTS for short, just so I stop repeating that, the most important thing is that it's reader manipulation all the way through. When we, as solar writers, mystery suspense, as we go in and start writing, we need to think about what we want the reader to be thinking and feeling and assuming about what's going to happen, who did the bad thing, who their ultimate person is that killed everybody or whatever it is. And the best way to do that is to kind of point over here to the reader and make them look in one direction while you're actually doing this other thing over here. And so that ends up feeling like a twist because we have successfully told them to think about thing A and we're actually revealing thing B. And reveals and twists are slightly different. We can get into that in a minute. But it's all about reader manipulation. We very deliberately want to misdirect the reader when we're writing these kinds of stories.
1: Let's talk about reveals and twists for a second, because plot sure. twists, I think, are really important in any type of story. But you need stellar plot twists in an MTS. Talk to us about what you said there and how you can incorporate them masterfully in a story like this. Yeah. Even how, so... Or maybe even how Riley Sager does it in this one. You can <laughs> talk about it. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So I won't get into any spoilers yet, but he does have, I think I counted six major twists in this story. It could be five. It doesn't really matter. Anyway, the standard is sort of three. There's one at kind of the midpoint at 50%. There's a climactic twist around 85, 80 percent And then there's usually a final twist in the last like 5% of the book, often on the last two pages. That's classic sort of modern thriller convention. Obviously you can have more, you can have less if it works, but that's a good number to aim for. And sorry, I forgot what the initial question was. So it, the twists and reveals, how do you yeah. start oh, to yes. plant them? How do you create that masterfully in the story? Thank you. The key difference to answer first is what is a twist and what is a reveal? So Claire McIntosh and Ruth Ware, two of my other favorite writers, and they were on a panel once talking about this. I'm just going to use verbatim what they said. A twist is an answer to a question the reader has not asked, which is why we, how we get into misdirection. We want them to ask this question over here. And the reveal is the answer to a question they have asked. So that's usually something like, you know, oh, this is the killer or this is what's happening. And we've been sort of planting questions all along about what that thing is. And when you're planning them, it really helps, I think, at a certain point, you've got to figure out the entire story and look backwards. It's almost impossible to write these as you go. There are some writers, Hank Philippi Ryan, for example, another great teacher. She's one of these magical unicorn people who can just write a story and with all the twists and reveals, most of us can't. And so the best way to do that is to lay out your entire story, outline the whole thing and then work backwards. I personally like to work from the final twist because that's usually not the big climactic huge thing but it does give you the idea of how to plant little misdirection clues throughout so that we sort of suspect one thing. And then this final, final twist often relates to that. And I'm trying to talk about this without giving you spoilers. There's so many in this book. Maybe we just kind of dive in and and start doing spoilers. Yeah, go for it.
1: I always say um, when we're analyzing stories, you need to be aware that spoilers might happen. It helps you understand how the story is packaged and works together. So here we go, listeners. Spoilers coming right now. <laughs> if you don't want to yes. hear a it for a second, skip over
0: the next minute. <laughs> but go ahead, go talk to us about it. Perfect. Okay, so spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. The main big twist in this book is that we start off in chapter in the prologue and in chapter one, which we'll get into thinking that this other character, Catherine, is the one who is missing and is no longer on the page. And it turns out that this uh, that she's actually been inhabited by the main character, Casey's ex-husband, whom it turns out she killed. (laughs) And so we think the whole book that that Catherine is is haunted or is kidnapped or something. And then we find out around 70 percent that Len, Casey's ex-husband, is actually the one who's inhabiting her body and has come alive again through something that's happening in this lake. And we suspect the entire time that Catherine's husband, Tom, is the one who's like the ultimate person doing bad things. And he's the final, final twist. And so what Riley does really, really well in this book is we we think that Tom, Catherine's husband, is is a baddie. We get to about 85, 80% and we think, oh, thank goodness, he's not. You know, he's 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 just a good guy. And then in that last little bit, we find out he actually was trying to kill her this whole time. And so that's almost like a, Oh, twist reversal, like we sort of expect it, it was revealed to be not true, and that's revealed to be true, which makes it a twist. So yeah, it just, there's a lot going on here. Yeah, I feel like you don't see it coming because he does such a good job with all the misdirection. I didn't figure it out the first time I read this until I was about 70% of the way through. It was right before they revealed it. You could kind of feel something was building. That's so interesting. And I love that you pulled out percentages, because it feels like two things, two big things
1: that I'm hearing is that one of these mechanisms that you can use, as a strategy you can use to incorporate these conventions, these mechanisms, is making us feel safe. Making us feel like we, okay, the whole time we were thinking it was this red herring, I feel safe, and then twisting it again. So just Absolutely. when you let your guard down, that's when you... You can take a jab at the reader for what really is the evil in the story, <laughs> which is again reader manipulation. <laughs> right, exactly, reader manipulation. And then the other thing that you did really well is you pulled out percentages. So clearly, you've studied the story deeply. Do you find that a seventy percent percentage is an average percentage for an MTS book to have a big twist, a major plot twist? And are there ever plot twists in the climax? Because when I plot stories, I always also, like you, I want to know the end because then I work backwards. It's like that's how you yeah. can as the author, play God a little bit. But you're saying that usually there isn't a giant plot twist maybe in the climax. It's going to be a little bit before that. So I'm interested to hear your comprehension. Yeah. Of that. yeah.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, percentages, I like to caution my writers, don't hold so hard to the actual number. It's not like 72 is the exact right or whatever it is. But yes, to answer your question, usually in the climax, the twist has happened right before that and affected the way the climax goes. So in this book, spoiler alert, We have the main character, Casey, thinking that something is going to be happening. I guess this is a spoiler. I'll talk around it. Something's going to be happening. And she takes a bunch of actions based on that assumption, which, again, is a great way to misdirect the reader because we're following her along. She's our point of view character. She's our protagonist. She's the only point of view we see. And so we believe what she's doing and we're along for the ride. Then she discovers this thing and it completely reverses everything that's happening. And so... I feel like Riley Sager did a bit of an interesting thing here where there's often something called a midpoint reversal. It's classic kind of story structure. She does have that, but it's not what you expect. And so there is a bit of a reversal, and then we have this other huge twist, and then we have the climax. But typically in MTS, the climax is going to be a reaction to the twist that just happened. And it just throws everything up in the air and it feels wild because it's a complete reversal of what we thought was going to be there. Thanks for shedding light on
1: that. Really important concept for everyone to know. And I bet we're going to have some in this prologue and in this first chapter. So it's nice to see the setup and to start to see how we're creating misdirection or how Riley creates misdirection in these first chapters. So we'll move into that. What we're doing, this is a first tab deep dive analysis episode. My listeners, if you've been listening for a while, you know that we do these deep dive first chapter analysis episodes to understand what hooks a reader in first chapters and what can really make a masterful first chapter, which, of course, you need not only to hook an agent, but to write a great book in general. And then, of course, you want to take your skill sets and carry this throughout your whole book. You can't just have great first pages. But these learning first pages can model how to become a great writer. We, Sam and I decided, and we agreed, we did it on our own and then had shared literally the (laughs) same, within the same minute, (laughs) wrote each other an email (laughs) to confirm this idea. So that was really funny. But we both agreed that the prologue has its own thing. So you have to kind of read the prologue as its own thing. The way that we do scene structure analysis in these episodes, we use the five commandments. So I don't call it a full scene. I don't think that the five commandments exist in this prologue. The prologue more sets the stage for the story and the setting and the tone. So we have the prologue and then we have now. We move into now and then you go into your first chapter. When we're doing big picture, we'll talk about the prologue morphed with the first chapter. And when we move into the scene structure, the scene analysis for the first chapter, we will just do the first chapter. That sounds good to you, Sam. I'll go ahead. and was great. Awesome. Okay, I will read the summaries of each because we're going to do the seven key first chapter questions first. For the prologue, I said it's an unnamed narrator. It's going to be Casey, we assume, but it's unnamed in the prologue. An unnamed narrator recounts her childhood summer's months living in a house on a dark lake in Vermont. She recounts how her friend Marnie would dare her to swim out in the darkest parts of the lake and how it was hard to tell which way was up and down and that across the lake there are five houses of different sizes, the narrator intensely watches one in particular. There's your prologue. For the now, chapter one, Detective Wilma Anson questions Casey about what she's seen across the lake at the Royce house. When Casey shares nothing, Wilma reveals that Tom Royce is missing and hints at her suspicions that Casey is involved. However, when Wilma asks Casey to stay out of Catherine's missing person case, Catherine is Tom's wife, and questions Casey about Tom, Casey shares nothing and even invites Wilma to search her house. Wilma leaves for now. She's satisfied for now, although still suspicious, believing Casey, and Casey ventures upstairs after Wilma leaves to a tied up man that we assume is Tom. She pours herself, of course, a glass of bourbon before she does that. And we find him upstairs tied up and she starts to interrogate him. So that is the end of the first chapter. So woo! I was hooked right away. (laughs) (laughs) Hard not to be. Hard not. Well done. (laughs) So great example of a first chapter in a prologue that does benefit the story. We'll go ahead and dive into that to go into the big picture. As always, in these first chapter episodes, we analyze with the seven key first chapter questions, which I have pulled from Pauline Munet's The Writer's Guide to Beginnings. And these hit on how the chapters in the story, the opening of the story itself, hint at the big picture and set the stage in expectations for the big picture. The first of these focuses on genre. And Sam, when I go through these, I like to talk about content genre, the story type and commercial genre how you would market the story so if you were to say Mm -hmm. what kind of story is this what is the house across the lake
0: this is a great question i thought about it for a while so it's a thriller that's how i would market it but it's also a mystery we have a missing person and so i would call it probably a thriller with mystery elements but it could probably comfortably be shelved in either of those genres it's more thriller than mystery because there's more suspense there's more of the thriller element all the twists and everything that you often see Okay,
1: great. So I'm going to pick your brain a little bit about this Yeah, because when I am separating content and commercial, I agree completely with you that I think that if you were to write this, you're following a thriller story type. I would call that thriller. It's content genre. And then there's always genre blending. So in a commercial genre, I can see this as mystery thriller, thriller, mystery, thriller, mystery, suspense, or mystery thriller suspense. Those three tend to be grouped together. I'm not sure I understand quite the differences between the three. (laughs) So I agree with you. I see blending for this as a commercial genre. And I'm curious if you could just quickly share some pointers for writers and readers to understand really what we can expect as
0: a difference between
1: a dominant mystery, a dominant thriller, a dominant suspense, if that makes sense. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Another topic I've thought deeply about because there's not really an answer that everyone accepts. It's kind of depending on who you talk to, you get different answers. So caveat with that, I think that when you have a thriller, you are increasing the heart rate of the reader throughout the entire thing. You're keeping that energy high you're keeping the pacing high. Readers pick up thrillers because they want to be a little bit scared. They want to have that nervous energy, that feeling. However, suspense also can be categorized that way, but I would categorize suspense more along the lines of a lower grade, just constant nervousness throughout. And so thriller is like more high octane. That's why you hear that, like the uh, Jack Ryans and, you know, like those kinds of things. That's often what you think of when you think of thriller. But thriller can also be like this, where it's something scary. Um, This almost has, I mean, this has horror paranormal elements as well, because we have this spoiler ghost thing that happens and spoiler and that's unexpected and that's definitely genre blending as as well and so mystery is a little easier to define i would say mysteries more often than not you're going to have a body or some something to solve in the first five ten percent if not the first page and so that gets under reader expectations mysteries have an expectation that all the loose ends are going to be wrapped up and if they're not that they're going to be the protagonist or the pov character is going to say like I'm not wrapping up this loose end. I'm okay with leaving it be, leaving it open. But you, it is identified, and the the reader finishes the book with a sigh of relief because everything is sort of solved. Thrillers conquer the bad thing, sigh of relief. Suspense, maybe you end the book with a little bit of fear in your heart. That's really interesting, and I love that you shared the spoiler
1: because <laughs> I wouldn't have known horror, paranormal blending in here without knowing the spoiler because I haven't finished the story yet. Again, I think that more and more of these really widely commercially popular books, we're seeing a lot of genre blending. But we need a content genre to have a North Star and to understand what we're trying to pull off here. And then you can absolutely create more of those plots, twists, and reveals with all of these other elements. Thank you for breaking that down. That helps categorize what I'm looking for and figuring out dominantly What is this? Even though if it's blending all of it. Great breakdown. For the second question, let's talk about plot. And the question is,
0: what is the story really about? I thought a lot about this, too. I think that one of the main things that pops up for me, especially with the prologue and the chapter one and all this sort of mysterious, like he doesn't have chapter numbers throughout this book. Very, Very deliberate decision, right? It's all meant to mislead and sort of leave the reader feeling a little off kilter and not sure what's going on. Very intentional. And so I think this is about ultimately like seeking beneath the surface, all is not what it seems, kind of something along those lines in terms of a theme, because every single character is not what they seem. Everybody is hiding something and it pops up throughout the book. But we assume that we can trust Casey. We assume we can trust all these other people, except for the one who's labeled in the very beginning, Tom, as being the potential bad guy. But in a thriller, you can assume that if someone is misdirecting you on page six to think that somebody is the person doing bad things, they will probably not be the ultimate person. And so you're like messing with reader expectations and all of it gets back to manipulation and being very intentional about decisions like this. Um, So the prologue had a lot of interesting things about mirrors and, you know, like beneath the surface, below the surface. Watching, you know, like through a pane of glass at what's going on in somebody else's house, which leads you to think that maybe there's something going on that's you know not surface level. Lots of fun metaphors and imagery, and absolutely, I think that's what the prologue does. It's servicing us
1: and setting this really eerie, creepy, you know, exactly what it is—danger is lurking
0: <laughs> in every yeah.
1: in every corner. Type of energy to it. Focused, of course, then on the setting of the houses across the lake. The up, down, the not knowing where to swim up and down, that's particularly stuck out to me visually mm-hmm. um and created that sense of fear or that sense of worry, I guess, like anxiety, right? Yeah. <laughs> At the same time being excited. When we're thinking about this now as like a character, what is the story really about? I guess you would say it's about Casey and mm-hmm. she's trying to find her friend Catherine. And it's like very bare bones, Catherine is her friend. She is someone who she saved from drowning early in the story, right? And she developed a a friendship and she is very suspicious, as you mentioned, of the husband, Tom. She thinks that this marriage is not all what it's meant to be, which feeds into exactly what you said there, that this story is about not everything's not as it seems. (laughs) What's crazy about that is that once you set that as the stage of your story is about Everything is not that it seems. Readers are immediately going to assume everything is not true. Like
0: <laughs> you're always going to be exactly it, right.
1: And, it's really a trick, yeah.
0: And it's part of the fun of of both writing thrillers and reading them because it's thriller and mystery. I mean, readers are smart. Any book you write, you're going to have to trust the reader that they're going to come with you in the story and figure out what you want them to figure out. Mysteries and thrillers and suspense definitely play with that, and we as writers try to trick the reader. And the reader knows that we're trying to trick them. So we're constantly sort of butting heads off camera and alone with the book that we're reading. And it's really, really satisfying as an MTS reader when you figure out the twist before it happens. But you don't want it to be so easy that you picture it on page 10 or whatever it is. You want to give people some time to sort of develop their own theories and then be proven wrong or proven right. And yeah. I think what's so
1: interesting, too, is, so, you know, because this podcast is dominantly for writers, not readers, mm-hmm. although I'd love to have reader listeners as well. But, <laughs> you know, and all writers should be readers. I separate the the two categories and to make sense of the idea that writers are starting to pick up on patterns in storytelling as an analysis project so that they can figure out how to follow the same patterns, incorporate the same patterns in their own stories so that we all write the same but different. It's very important because this yeah. is people embrace stories so much into even like their their path of learning how to live and change perspectives because we subconsciously or consciously ab- absorb these patterns and we understand that. So I say all this because my husband loves these types of stories. He is not really a reader so much as a TV binger. <laughs> you a <know>, TV <laughs> But it's just so funny because I remember we were watching The Flight Attendant and mm-hmm. with Keely with Kuko and the book as well. But that was one that had been a long time that I hadn't guessed a twist. Yeah. And part of that, I find it fun. I've always found it fun because it's a game to me. I enjoy that. Yeah. I've had my other friends who are not writers say to me, doesn't that kill stories for you? And it's like, no, it makes
0: them more interesting. It's so. so interesting. <laughs> right. Yeah, but that's one of the biggest things about being specialized in a genre and knowing what you, what genre you're writing in as mm-hmm. writers is we've got to know what the readers are going to expect. And if you can subvert that expectation or mess with it in some way, that's when you start getting up with clever things like this. Even this prologue hints at paranormal. We know that there's something going on with the lake, but we don't assume paranormal. I mean, the cover, I'm holding it up for mm-hmm. listeners. Yeah, but do like, it. Sure. You know, It's creepy, you know, like there's dark colors and you can tell, you know, once you read the whole thing, you're like, yep, that absolutely nails it. But it very much could also just be a story about people doing bad things with no paranormal Mm -hmm. elements, reader expectations. And it's okay because we're getting hints. And so it makes sense from the standpoint of looking back at everything once we're done. But yeah, knowing those expectations is just so, so key.
1: When you pull in something with a paranormal aspect, how can you make sure that you don't lose an audience? Because that might not be the normally yeah. the type of story that they write. How does this one do it well?
0: So I think it's a risk. There's been a couple books like Day Darker by Alice Feeney came out. And this last year, that one also had some paranormal elements. And some of the reviews that I heard of that were like, wow, did not expect the twist. And I think that It just has to make sense when you look back. Mm -hmm. I think that's the biggest thing. You don't want to slam someone over the head with something that comes out of left field and have them think like, wait, what? It should make sense when you see the twist and it should be like, oh, I didn't even think about that as a possible solution or reason for why this is happening. But again, with this prologue, we know there's something going on in the lake. We know that there's something that's happening deep in the lake. We know that bad things happen in the lake. Mm-hmm. And because it's a lake, it's not a human. So that right. makes perfect sense once we learn what the twist is. So
1: interesting. I'm hearing setups and payoffs are key to yeah. all of this. Because totally you <laughs> need to be able to look back as a reader who's learning how to read like a writer. You need to look back and be able to say, ah, that all makes sense. And not only does it make sense, but I can't see it any other way now. And that's mm-hmm. when you know that you've done a really good job versus if it is a du sex magna kind of. Yeah solution. Totally. Yeah. Very, very well said. Very cool. Okay. So we'll move on to question three. This deals with point of view. And the question is, who is telling the story? And I'm going to add, why do you think that's important? Okay.
0: As you already pointed out in the prologue, we have an unnamed narrator. We don't know who is watching. We don't know what is watching. Another clue to potential paranormal deliberately kind of withheld, right? It doesn't say like there's no indication of gender. In either the first chapter of the prologue, which I think is interesting and something that Riley does well with his books, which allows the reader, by the way, to slot themselves into this POV character without feeling like, oh, I'm looking through a gendered lens or whatever it is. It's just this person and I'm experiencing this story. Once we get into it, it's first person POV, which I think works beautifully because Casey is, as it turns out, a rather unreliable narrator in that she's deliberately withholding information from us because she knows it and the reader doesn't, and it's this weird twisty thing where we don't need to know it until we need to know it, but she's not actually lying to us at any point. It just isn't said, which is one of those cardinal rules of thrillers that I think sometimes writers need to learn over time is that if you were to lie to the reader deliberately with first-person POV or with anything besides just dialogue, you can lie in dialogue, but not in inner thought, you immediately lose trust with the reader. And so Riley Sager toes this line (laughs) so closely, and it really, really works. But at no point is he lying to us via Casey's POV. So is the prologue not Casey? I was actually just thinking that. As you said that, I... I think it could not be, but also the focus on the be. Royce house, it makes yeah. me think that it's Casey. So yeah. I if I had to put it, like write it down, I would say it's Casey, but I think you could argue that it could be somebody else. So
1: interesting. I say this because I think that when prologues do a good job and they always say no one wants yeah. to have a prologue, but then all these books that are published and do really well have prologues. So yeah. understanding when prologues do a good job in a service to the story versus a disservice And I have noticed that with a thriller story, mystery story, suspense story in particular, there usually is a prologue that is having a certain purpose of creating Mm -hmm. this tone, this mood, and usually an outside perspective than the main character. So we are pulling us out to then pull us in. If it is Casey, if it's not Casey, it's not going to be confirmed, but it is written in italics compared to... The first chapter where we are exactly, we know with full confidence that we are in Casey's first person point of view. I loved that you pointed out that you can't lie to us Mm -hmm. with internal reflection because that you can't, it is, it's not about deceiving, right? It's about withholding information if you are going to have something. So that's really, really important to understand. And we're going to have a bias in first person. So that's going to give us an advantage to pull the wool over our eyes.
0: It's brilliant like that. Close third also works that same way, but there's more of a filter. Just barely. Right. And I think one of the most interesting things that he does with Casey is that it really is a true twist when we learn, spoiler alert, what we do about her ex-husband. End of spoiler. Like it, we don't even know to ask that question. We don't even know that she's hiding anything. And so when it comes out, we look back and we're like, oh, all of this makes so much more sense. But it didn't even occur to me that what we've sort of been led to believe has happened has not actually happened. That's really well said. Thanks for sharing that. Okay, we'll
1: move into question number four, which deals with character. The question is, which character should readers care about the most? And we're focusing on this not as the story of of a whole, although it is the story as a whole, but particularly when we do prologue in this first chapter, who
0: do we care about and why do we care about them? I think that this was this was really well done in this. So in the prologue, again, we talked about that. We're not sure who's talking, so it's hard to know who to care about. But we do have a focus on this house, the Royce house. And then we see the name Royce pulled into chapter one, so we know that this is the same thing. And it's also called now instead of before or later or any other sort of timing indicators that he gives us. So we care about Casey. She's our protagonist, quite obviously. She's first person. She says she's lying, like in, in her thought. She says, oh, here's a time for a lie. I had to lie. I can't remember exactly what it was. But we have so many questions. We want to know why she's lying. We want to know what she has to do with this murder investigation, maybe. We want to know why she cares so much. And then once Wanda leaves, all of a sudden, Wilma, sorry, we end up seeing her <laughs> interrogate the very person that we think is responsible for her friend by asking, where is Catherine? What did you do with Catherine? And so we care deeply. We are hooked because we have so many questions. We want to see them answered. It's short. I think both the both the prologue was maybe five hundred words, and the for chapter one is like seven fifty. It's like three pages, and in that time, we're on Casey's side. We have a lot of questions. We care about what happened to Catherine, and we also think that Tom is the person doing bad things. So we're in it,
1: definitely in it. And I think another thing that's really interesting about these characters, I agree with you. Casey and Catherine were my two that I cared about the most, you don't know a lot about Casey. So it is interesting that you are on her team right away, because mm-hmm. one of the things that it's in the back cover and it's in the first chapter, she drinks bourbon. So she a lot of like, bourbon. It's a <laughs> lot of bourbon. And we've seen this as something that happens a lot in psychological thrillers where we don't yeah. really necessarily have a reliable narrator because they have a drinking problem. Like a girl on the train, a woman in the window, like these are these are some ones. And here we are with Riley setting up Casey as someone who watches a house. Immediately, yep. I was going there where I was like, oh, how much bourbon are we going to be drinking? And do I need to have some distrust in her yeah. conception of things? At the same time, she seems much more controlled than the other narrators that I have seen in those situations. She even starts with coffee and then moves to bourbon. Um, I also think that something that's really well done is that we do feel that she cares deeply about Catherine. It's not confirmed that it's Tom, but you assume it's Tom at the end. She's willingly put herself in danger. And not only is she willing to put herself in physical danger, potentially, because if Tom is a bad guy and has done something physically terrible to her Mm -hmm. best friend or her friend, then she's putting herself in that. Place Now she's going to be hands on a target. At the same time, she's also risking in the justice system because Wilma yeah. doesn't trust her. So if she's wrong, she could really get in trouble with the law. She's willing to take a lot of risk in order to find her friend. So She deeply cares about her friend or we assume that she deeply cares about her friend. And of course, we care about Catherine because she's she's a victim. So we don't know a lot about Catherine. You know, there are always skeletons in the closet. If this is about a story, of you don't trust everything that you see, then I'm sure there's always going to be layers to to characters as well. It's a great character when there are layers. But ultimately, if someone is missing, you're worried about that person, even if you don't know much about them. There's just something that, as a human being, you usually care about that. For question number five, the focus is on setting, which I feel like this is a very important question. For this story in particular, where
0: and when does the story take place? We learn, I believe, in the first chapter that we're Lake Green is the name of the place, and it's in eastern Vermont. It's rural. So we know that we're kind of out in the middle of nowhere, away from other people, in <laughs> great thriller setting, right? Like, obviously, someone's going to get murdered. Because this is introduced so early, this is, again, with that reader expectation thing. And I, I want to touch on something you just said about the the Girl on the Train and The Woman in the Window, The House Across the Lake is a deliberate play on those other thrillers that it immediately brings in what the reader is going, you know, and we have bourbon, we have a drinking protagonist. And so that's a subversion as well, right? He's playing on expectations from other books in the genre. And that is just brilliantly done because we go in thinking we're going to have a similar story and then it's not. And that that makes it even twistier. But yes, the setting of it being just out in the middle of nowhere, it's dark, there's a hurricane coming, like, we just know that there's going to be some uncomfortable stuff happening by how that feels when we read about it.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, I love what you're saying here. This is where I talk to writers, though, we need to write the same but different. So it's okay to have, actually, it's necessary to have the same expectations conventions per story type you need conventions you need obligatory scenes mandatory things that would happen in a story that fits a story type because as a reader we establish those expectations but how you do them is what makes (laughs) you either masterful at your craft or not and riley sager is masterful in this way because i was immediately assuming this is what we're going to get now he's able to give me that but change it in a way that i'm not dissatisfied He's not dissatisfying my expectations because he's going to hit them as a genre type, but he's going to work with a similar setting to ground me there and then take me somewhere else. So I think that that's really interesting how he does that. When I'm looking at this setting in general, it's obviously we need to be on this lake and we need to be with this house, but we could be in any suburban forest We've seen in those stories, just by being isolated, you're creating tension, you're creating suspense in the darks with the hurricanes. All that's going to add to the atmosphere of the story that will create suspense and tension and conflict, unlimited amounts of conflict potential (laughs) opportunities with, with all of that. But one of the things that I also like to say is I think it came from Brandon Sanderson did this amazing teaching series on YouTube for BYU. And he talks about how most writers or most readers can agree that everything has plot, character, and setting as the most important elements in the story, and all of that's connected by conflict. So he talks about how if you're going to write the same story, you can have two of the same things, or you know, one of the same things, but then you mess with the other one. So Mm -hmm. I say all this. I hope I'm not rambling. I'm saying all this because I'm interested in this story in particular, as the setting is so important. But it's not that different of a setting from other stories like this that we might have seen in the sense of a dark forest, storms, Mm -hmm. but the elements of the setting are different and that's what makes it unique. Would you agree with that?
0: Absolutely. I feel like I'm just saying the same thing over and (laughs) over again, but the reader expectation here, I didn't know who Riley Sager was and I picked this up at the airport or something, which is how I sort of like to absorb new New fiction and just see if I can figure out what genre the book is in before I know anything else. Cool. You would immediately know by like the end of the first page that this Mm -hmm. is a thriller. Mm -hmm. There's going to be some bad stuff. You feel uncomfortable. You feel this tension. We have anticipation with the hurricane coming, which Mm -hmm. actually doesn't really play into the story at all, except for it gets stormy one night. But we have we know that this is going to be something where our blood pressure is increasing and our heart rate is increasing throughout because we have this tension built in. Mm -hmm. And so talk about giving readers what they want, like with very few words, we know exactly what to expect, even though we don't know how it's going to play out. And I
1: think that leads perfectly into the last two questions in these seven key questions. I'm going to group them because I think that they, they almost work together here. The sixth question deals with core emotion, and the question is, how should readers feel about what's happening next? And the seventh question deals with stakes, and the question is, why should readers, well, I guess, what are the stakes, and why should readers care about what happens next? Why should we care about what's happening, and why should we care about what's happening next? Dealing with what we're feeling with this prologue and this first chapter, and how the stakes are established, how would you answer that?
0: So the core emotion is tense, suspense, on edge. We know what kind of story it's going to be. And in terms of the stakes, we don't actually know what they are. We know that this person, Catherine, is in danger, but we don't know that Casey is friends with her, actually. We don't learn that until a little bit later. But we know that she's important to Casey, which is all that we really care about. And so we know that someone is in danger and that Casey has a ton of agency. Like you brought up, you know, she's lying to the cops. She's like putting her own physical safety and everything else in danger, immediate danger, by tying this person up and keeping them upstairs. The agency there makes us like her, but it also makes us extremely interested to know more. Like, why did she do this? The easy way out is to ignore or work with the cops or not do any of the things that she's apparently already done. And so the stakes are whether or not Catherine will die, I would say, as a high level. But we also wonder, is Casey going to survive this? Is she going to be somebody who ends up getting hurt we have this weird creepy prologue about the lake and is that going to play into it yes (laughs) but we don't know
1: how that's so great i'm with you exactly core emotion for me was nervous slash (laughs) excited
0: yeah (laughs) so it's like
1: i'm nervous this tone and everything that's happening makes me nervous for these characters at the same time i'm excited to learn what happens because i see that casey is someone who's going to take action And that makes me interested to see. With stakes, I always like to categorize them in a way that James Scott Bell does. And he says physical, professional, or psychological stakes. Mm -hmm. And then ideally, a story can have a combination of two or three, or all three. Mm -hmm. But one is dominant. And if I were to pick the dominant stakes in the story, I do think physical stakes is what jumps to the top of the line for me. We know Catherine's stakes are life and death. We know that just by her being a missing person. You know, that I think there's usually a window of time before finding someone. At the same time, I think it coincides because I know that at the end of this first chapter that Casey has tied up some man that she thinks is dangerous in her house and is interrogating him, that immediately puts her into the line of fire. So Mm -hmm. I think that there you're risking your physical stakes. And I think there's a combination, of course, of the psychological stakes And what's going to be happening with that? Because you can't really have no psychological stakes when you have physical stakes. And I think that not necessarily professionally, but there are stakes dealing, like I mentioned this earlier, with the law in the sense that Wilma has Casey on her radar. So I think that there Mm -hmm. are stakes there. If Casey fails to find Catherine or fails to cover up what she's doing, she's going to get in trouble from the law. So I have an expectation that that's going to play into the story at the same time, and I have an expectation that the physical stakes are going to get higher and higher, and that psychological stakes will coincide as something that escalates with physical stakes. Very so, well said. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. getting
0: getting arrested, regardless of your job, not great. You know, not like... great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and it prevents you from trying to find your friends. So totally yeah too. and i yeah. think
0: her drinking too is is something to point out like it's it's mm-hmm. one line it just mentions it was like three fingers of bourbon or something but like somebody the type of person that has someone tied up in their upstairs bedroom and lying to the cops already tells us a lot she has a, a ton of agency again but she's also just why right why are you doing this right and then the type of person to do that and be drinking which impairs your ability to think clearly is this the crutch is she doing this because she's Completely out of control and is trying to calm down? Is she an alcoholic? Can we trust her to your point? As you said earlier, all these other thrillers that deal with unreliable narrator who's drunk the entire book. Mm-hmm. It's just all the questions. And I think that's what makes this such an amazing first couple chapters. If you include the prologue in that, is that we, we're turning the page. There's no way we're not turning the page. And that's definitely true
1: <laughs> in the first chapter, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Awesome. So that packages up the seven key first chapter questions that help us understand big picture expectations on a chapter level. Now what we'll do is we'll move into the scene analysis. And I've mentioned earlier at the top of the podcast that scene analysis will focus solely on the first chapter. So we use the five commandments. This comes from Robert McKee or Sean Coyne of the story grid. They use these five commandments as a way of story elements that help you see change to see value shift. Something that's important has changed from beginning to the end. And that's what they encapsulate as a scene. It's not necessarily framed by restrictions like setting or something like that. There's movement in a scene and we see a full value shift. Before we do that, I think that it's important to establish three big questions. And these questions deal really with a literal level, what's happening with the character, and then going back to the big picture So that we're always understanding that while the scene works as a scene, its own unit of story, it must impact the big picture. If they're not moving the story forward on both levels, it's probably not a scene worth keeping in a story. Yeah. And we know that this scene is worth keeping. So (laughs) we'll go into that first for the first question on the literal level. So what are the characters literally doing in this chapter? And how does that change from the beginning to the end of the scene?
0: That we're just looking at the now, this chapter one that we're establishing as chapter one. So we know that Casey, whose name we don't even see until I think this the second page, someone being interviewed by a detective and they're lying about it. They're lying about their answers. They're hiding something. We see the detective leave. We see that Casey has somebody tied up upstairs and is going to be solving this crime by herself. That's literally what happens. But there's more to it than that in terms of all the tone and all this other thing. But yes. Yep. I had something similar. So I said on a literal level, Wilma questions
1: Casey about Tom Royce, who is missing. And then I said, as a change, I said something like Wilma questioning Casey to Wilma's departure. So I guess I focused on that as the shift. Casey herself doesn't change on a literal location level. So I thought the change was more based on what was literally happening to her and how those pieces moved.
0: That's interesting. I think there's also the you know, when you're reading this as a reader, we make assumptions that Casey is doing something good. We don't Mm -hmm. generally assume when we walk into a story that someone's doing something bad. And so the fact that she's sort of a criminal, so that we think is really interesting and changes the reader expectation as well. So we went, we entered the story thinking one thing and we exit chapter one thinking, oh, Mm -hmm. okay,
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) here we go. Right away. More than meets the eye. (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. To the
1: character and the situation. Question number two is what does the main character in the scene want or what is their goal and how does this change or evolve from the beginning to the end? So this is really important because understanding a character's goal helps us understand how the commandments work because the commandments are all about how a character goes about trying to achieve their goal and they have to usually shift gears in some way. So what do you think Casey wants in this scene? Why do you think she wants this? And how do you think her ability to acquire or not acquire that want in the scene changes from
0: beginning to end? She wants to save Catherine. That's Mm -hmm. the overwhelming, obvious goal that she has. And I think that's really well done because we do know, I mean, we're in the first chapter and we already know this is going to be the goal of the book, basically. And this does carry through the entire thing. Mm -hmm. And how she changes, it's more about her desperation level. And it's, again, how we're perceiving her. So she's being interviewed. She lies and then she ends, up, she ends up showing us, like, I'm willing to do anything up to and including taking somebody prisoner mm-hmm. to find my friend. I don't trust the cops. That's an overwhelming kind of change that I, I mean, it's not really a change that she has in the story, but it's a perception change from our side. Yeah, it's, it's such a short chapter. It's a little, it's a little tough, but there, there is kind of this shift in terms of we understand that she wants to save Catherine and she'll do whatever it takes.
1: Initially, that's where I went. And then I started to look back like even more on a scene level because ultimately I think her goal is that she wants to save Catherine. I think also that's her big picture goal. So I was trying to piece out. All right. I see that this is about saving Catherine, but we don't really understand that until the end of the scene where we see that she's actually done something to try to get involved with this. Wilma plant suspicions that Casey might be up to something because of how she suspects that Casey's been involved because she broke into the house. So there's that, you know, leak of information about Casey has been picking around in areas that probably she shouldn't have been. And then I thought to myself, okay, but on a scene level, looking at the direct action that's happening right here, I think that Casey's goal is probably that she just wants Wilma out of her house. She just wants Wilma to leave. Because yeah, well said. as long as Wilma is there, she can't go up and interrogate Tom. So I oh, that's think such a good point. So that's where I was going. I was like, on a think on a change, they work together. And this yeah. is the whole this is the whole point. Really, the big picture one and the scene one should work together. They shouldn't be really separate entities. They have to impact each other even if they're not necessarily concretely the same thing. I said that she wants Wilma to leave. Because that's going to allow her to get more involved in Catherine's case. And right now she just has this detective over her shoulder that she wants out of there. Uh I said maybe for a character change, it could be something internal like uneasy or annoyed or hesitant, whatever those feelings around Wilma being in in the way would be to determined and confident because she ends the scene very confident. But also that might have just been kind of, I, I don't know if she's totally like hesitant or uneasy, So then I went to something like passive to aggressive. She's a character who is just passively like listening and just answering these questions, but not really answering questions and then Mm -hmm. aggressively attacking Tom at the end. Good point. (laughs) That's where I go. And I always like to, I just always like to reemphasize. It's okay for people to have different analysis. The point of analyzing with tools like this is to help us understand why we think there's purpose to a scene and if a scene works. Yeah. So People are going to see different things, but the discussion, I think, is what helps us confirm why a scene works or or doesn't work. And the other thing I like to always really say is that don't stress about the words that you use to describe a change. Just be able to describe words that change on a same on a similar spectrum. Because if you can't, because if you can't do that, you likely have no change. But if you can do that, and even if it's a way of maybe it's not a single word, but a description of how a change happens. That to me is still effective because no reader is analyzing a story on this level. As writers, we can analyze a story in this level to help us write better
0: stories because we understand how masters work. Totally. Yeah. I love your, your passive to aggressive thing because it's true. She's in a place of less power and she goes to a place of ultimate power as mm-hmm. well, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the power yeah. shift is massive in these you three You could pages. say that.
1: Yeah, it could be like, you know, powerless to power. Yeah. But question number three. We'll say, how does the change in the scene impact the big picture, particularly the main value shift? And what i like to say about this one is that this is the question that shows us the lens of the author. So Mm -hmm. this is where the author understands this. The character and the reader do not understand this until they've read the whole thing. So I think ultimately, when you're asking yourself, how is that impacting the big picture? We're leading to more of a description and it's probably going to deal with, a well, it's not probably, it should deal with the value shift that is the dominant value shift for the genre type. So mm-hmm. in a thriller, if we're going with thriller, we're talking about on a scale of life to death damnation. So those are really mm-hmm. your, your big stakes, that's your huge spectrum. So on a big picture, what is happening in this scene that can describe how the value shift is shifting with that lens? Does
0: that make sense? It does, I think, you're in tune with story grid terminology than I am. But ultimately with this, there is there is life and death and it becomes Mm -hmm. even more life and death than we expect. Not really Mm -hmm. a spoiler, but just it's a thriller. So you can sort of expect that that's going to happen. We think it's going to be about saving Catherine. It ends up being about something else. Okay, so Uh, talk to
1: me about what it is instead, because that's the big picture.
0: Spoiler alert anyone who hasn't read the book, don't listen to this part. We end up learning that she has murdered her ex-husband, her mm-hmm. husband, Len. Casey. Casey has mm-hmm. because he is a serial killer in this in this town. And so when we start noticing, like, there's these little hints throughout of, like, missing girls that they don't really know if they're dead. They've never found any bodies. But we mm. immediately, because still our readers, uh, suspect that there's something terrible afoot. Mm-hmm. We start thinking it's maybe one of the other men around the other houses on the lake. Okay. And ultimately, this ends up being a story of almost redemption. So Casey has committed murder to save other people from being killed. She kills her husband. Awful choice, right? Like, Can the end <laughs> and justify so is... the means type
1: of situation, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a,
0: that's exactly what it ends up being. So mm-hmm. she ends up deciding to come clean. So she's been living in this kind of limbo Space where she's drinking a lot, she's ignoring her feelings, she's grieving the loss of the person she thought she knew, she's grieving the fact she had to murder somebody, Mm -hmm. she's using alcohol to get through it. And then she finds she's focusing in on Catherine being missing, and it all gets kind of like intertwined. But in the very end, she makes the decision to come clean and then she makes the decision to survive, which is in this life and death little i'm not sure what you call that yeah um, no no that spectrum yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. but it's it's reversed right so we don't think this is necessarily a story about casey coming and deciding to live and deciding to come clean with everything that she has done but Mm that would end up being so interesting yeah the very last line of the book is about her never allowing this to happen again and Mm -hmm. that she's Mm -hmm. going to watch Mm -hmm. and prevent She's
1: super powerful. So interesting. Right? Okay, so I'm going to have to revise my answer to the plot question about what is this okay. story really about, right? Because it's not necessarily yeah. about Casey trying to find her friend. It is on surface level. But what the story is really about is Casey trying to redeem herself from murdering her serial killer husband, which she has great guilt about, but did it ultimately to save innocent lives. See, this is why it's so important that I have you here. <laughs> well, I'm, I love having you here regardless, but i know. Need you to read the whole book (laughs) to really understand that big picture level and how the scene works on the big picture. Do you think it's fair to say something like to answer this question that this scene is important to the big picture because Casey has decided to involve herself in her friend's missing case despite the detective's insistence that she does not because she's dealing with a sense of guilt over an Mm -hmm. action that she feels. She had to do. And through that, we can say by putting herself in this position, we're probably moving to a place of uninvolved to danger, something like that. Would that be fair? Yeah.
0: Absolutely. She sort of derails throughout the book, right? We enter the story in this, we we learn about now and then we go back in time. And so we understand that things are different between now and then. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the tension too. It's like how do these two timelines come together? But yeah, I mean, Casey makes the ultimate sacrifice and makes all these terrible decisions. And, you know, I like to think of it like thrillers, the most effective thrillers and the ones that are most satisfying as readers are when we put the character in a position where it's rocking a hard place, like there's no yeah. choice. And we know as the reader exactly what both choice means to them and how awful both are and what the various pros and cons are. Casey does this like five times. <laughs> she just keeps being in these awful places. And then we learn like, oh, my Gosh, it's even more intense than we thought once we learned this thing about her husband.
1: The layers get thicker and thicker.
0: Yeah. So many All layers. Right.
1: <laughs> so, this is great. And I love that you have pulled out decision making because, in my opinion, I think that on every scene, the turning point and crisis work together. In my opinion, some people will say that the turning point is the most important part of the scene. And because that's what creates the value shift, and the people will say the dilemma or the crisis is the most important part of the scene. Because that's when they make a decision. And for me, I'm always like, no, they go together. That's just how I see Mm -hmm. it. Because the turning point causes the crisis. Now, what we're going to do, I love everything that you've said. I'm so happy you're here. I'm really excited (laughs) to (laughs) finish (laughs) this (laughs) book. I'm really excited (laughs) to finish this book. Even knowing spoilers, I'm excited to see it play out. Now, let's look at how this first scene works on a scene level. So we do have Five Commandments. It's a short scene. Like you said, it's just over 700 words. That's short. You know, average scene length, usually somewhere more between... 2,000 and 3,000, 2,500, I think they call the potato chip link. So (laughs) we have a really short chapter here, but I do think we see all five commandments in this quick 700 plus words. I'm just going to go through them real quick and then we'll peel through them together at an analytical level. So inciting incident is the first commandment that is the unexpected disturbance that either creates the goal for the character, the main character in the scene, or forces them to change their approach in order to achieve their goal. That's where the goal part comes in because my goal I had said was she wants Wilma to leave. So Mm -hmm. my commandments are going to revolve around that. It'll be interesting to see if yours stay the same or shift because we had a slightly different approach to that. Turning point is an action or revelation that forces a character into a crisis decision. It is not another progressive complication. It is bigger than another conflict because even to avoid this conflict, leads to consequences. Not making a decision is still making a decision in this case. Mm -hmm. The crisis is a crisis question or crisis decision, which means that we have two equally weighted bad or good alternatives to a question. We either have a best bad choice, which means that both things are going to be equally terrible for (laughs) the main character, or an irreconcilable goods decision, which is the inverse of a best bad choice, meaning that probably both are going to be good options for the main character. But it might negatively impact a third party. It's going to impact someone in some way. The climax is the direct action that a character takes on to make their crisis. It's really quick. we can see something as extended as a climax. I was a culprit of this in the beginning, I'd give a lengthy description of the climax. and I was like, wait, the actual climax though, we're just looking at the direct action. And then yeah. the resolution is everything that falls after that. So otherwise known and some people know this is Dan but this is the resolution, so we see everything that happens because of how the decision is made in the climax, and we see where a character really stands at the end of that. So inciting incident, what is that unexpected disturbance to you in the first chapter?
0: We're entering in the middle of the action, which I think is a really clever thing that he does, and a lot of really good thriller writers do. If we don't spend a lot of time sort of like setting it up or, you know, Telling the telling the reader where where and when we are, which is a normal note that I give on people's work when I'm when I'm book coaching, and it works because we have this prologue to sort of set the scene, and so we don't really need it. And so the inciting incident is really it could be argued to either be when she gets Wilma out of the house and decides to lie, or when she actually goes and confronts this person on the bed, whom we think is Tom. But I would argue it's it's probably her her decision to lie to the cops, right? You think yeah. the inciting
1: incident something that happens at the very end of the scene. Is that what you saw?
0: I think it could be that. I also think it could be the decision to get Wilma out of the okay. house. Okay,
1: so that's so interesting because I don't see it that way in the sense that oh. for me, I feel like the inciting incident has to happen more towards the beginning of the scene so that we can see how the other commandments play out. Because if uh-huh. I were to do an inciting incident, that was her going to see tom at the end of the scene that is the whole scene for me and i would feel like that Mm -hmm. wouldn't be actually be a scene in chapter one then you'd have to package it with the next piece of that and i say that because it's interesting because when i was reading this i also went into this place of i don't know if this could this work as its own scene or really is the scene (laughs) her starting to question him because this is why i like to tell writers plan your story out in scenes versus chapters Exactly. Because you can cut a chapter anywhere to create suspense. But a scene is something that needs to be substantial in a, in a way of change. Yeah. So I, I did go forward with the, you know, the next part of the now, but it doesn't yeah. pick up exactly where she left off. So I was like, no, oh, so yeah. because of that, I thought to myself, OK, I don't think that can be the incident. And I don't think that the scene extends across chapters. I think okay. I need to do one scene, one chapter. And this is I said, That the unexpected, and again, like my goal was to get Wilma out of the house. That was a little different. So my inciting incident was when Wilma tells Casey that Tom Royce is missing. Mm -hmm. because As soon as she does that, Casey starts to realize that Wilma is suspicious that she is involved in some way which raises the stakes because she knows that Tom is upstairs and she needs to get Wilma out, not only now because she wants to go up there and start messing with Tom, but also because if Wilma finds out that he's there, then she's in huge trouble. So that was my inciting incident because I think it established the goal of,
0: of her wanting to get her out even more. Um, from the standpoint of reading the whole book, that's exactly what Raleigh Sager wanted us to think. <laughs> in the first okay. <laughs>
1: So, but this, again, like, this is why discussion is so important, because what we're doing here is analyzing. And I think it's totally okay for people to have different analysis. And then through discussion, we can come to a conclusion of what do we actually, where do we actually think the structure works and why? And that can help us as writers to understand when we're making our own decisions and our own edits, how to execute the story and on the scene level and on the
0: sequence level and on the act level and on the story level, the best possible. So... So yeah, do you do you agree. like my
1: inciting incident? I, I really like your
0: inciting incident. I think we agreed on that 100. percent
1: Okay, so let's go with that one. So now you might need to shuffle around your other answers, but it's okay. It's, this is all through discussion. Okay. Yeah. All right. So turning point. The turning point again is that action or revelation that causes the crisis. So mm-hmm. if the inciting incident, if we're going to agree, is Wilma shares that Tom Royce is missing. What do you think is going to be the turning point that causes a crisis decision?
0: Well, she decides to lie. I'm trying to think about this from the standpoint of somebody coming into the story. Now they know everything. She decides to lie, and that causes things to be worse, right? Like a police detective is asking you questions, you lie about it. All of a sudden, the stakes are way higher, right? And so, I would argue that that is the turning point that then causes what what happens next. But the question there is, like, had she already been planning on lying? Did she already she, you know, does she know that Tom is missing? How much of this is sort of an unreliable narrator situation and that we don't know as the reader what's actually going on with Casey, which is part of what makes it so fun. So.
1: okay, so this is great because I agree with you. I think that it has to deal with if she's going to lie or not to Wilma. Now, what's so interesting about this is that she lies several times throughout the scene. So if I were to say a turning point can't just be a regular, regular complication, it has to be a complication that comes with consequences, even by not Mm -hmm. making a decision. It can't just be another opportunity that she can bat with another lie. So I said the specific moment, I think, is when Wilma tells Casey that their best chance of finding Catherine is if Casey stays out of the missing person case. And then Wilma asks Casey to tell her if she knows anything about Tom one last time. And the reason why I think that is the turning point is because the crisis I said is not so much then, am I going to continue to lie? But should I step aside or remain involved wrapped around her lying? Mm -hmm. So then, because really what Wilma does with that moment is she presents to her a warning if you get involved, this could make it worse. And And I'm sure people immediately see her. (laughs) Right, right. And it's like, like, I'm sure that Casey has considered, maybe she hasn't considered this, but I'm sure she's considered consequences of getting involved. But Mm -hmm. as you have said, on the big picture level, with the ends justifying the means, it's going to be worse for her to sit aside than to get involved because she's kind of on this redemption arc. So on the scene level, we don't know all that. But I do think on the scene level, we can see that Casey makes an active decision here to dismiss Wilma's. Or, you know,
0: Wilma's plea to not get involved or request to not get involved or warning, whatever you want to say it is, right? It's fabulous agency, too. Yes. Right? It's just she's making this decision. She's not just laying back. Even though earlier we said that she went from, like, a position of not very much power to a position of power, Mm -hmm. it takes great power to decide to lie to somebody in a position of power. Yes. And that actually gives her the upper hand.
1: And you have to have a good reason for it, right? Like, you have to really believe in your reason, I think, to do that. Yeah, absolutely agree with you. So that's where I went into a crisis of not necessarily do I lie or not, because I think that she lies multiple times, mm-hmm. but into a place of do I listen to Wilma and step aside and hence tell her the truth, or do I stick to my guns and stay involved in this case and continue to hide things and yeah. then she lies again. You're really good at this. I completely <laughs> agree. Listen, I've been doing this for a while. So we <laughs> get So the climax, I said, because it's the direct action. So because of that being her decision, I said the direct climax is that Casey lies to Wilma that she doesn't know anything. But I think it's more than that. Casey Mm -hmm. lies to Wilma and invites her to search her house. Yeah. And I think that's the big difference because all of the other moments of her lying, it's just dismiss, dismiss, dismiss. I don't know anything. Batting it away. But here it was. I am now a suspect and I'm a suspect that she believes is directly involved in this case. So what Mm -hmm. I'm going to do is directly invite her to search my whole house right now. I think that gives her the power again.
0: Yeah, it is the power shift, but it's also just it's such a risk. And we don't really understand that risk until we get a little bit further on and we look back and we say, oh, my God. What were you thinking? Why did you do that? That's so scary.
1: So elaborate like, on that for me, because you know the big picture. And while we're looking yeah. at this on a scene level, and I think you can defend this as it's working like this on a scene level, I want to know, mm-hmm. because small picture should feed big picture. What is that? Explain what you just said there. What is the risk? Why was she thinking this? Because she had a lot of ammo in her confidence <laughs> to make the suggestion that she could church the house when it didn't look like she had anything covered up. It was just
0: like, yeah. he was upstairs. So what yeah, if Wilma I mean, had said yes? Yeah. Exactly. What if she had? And then that would have ruined everything. And so that indicates to me that again, once you look back at it and you understand the full context of this moment, which is brilliantly internal. done. Yeah. Because is it because it's deeply understand. internal. Yes and no. It's just okay. that there's there's so much writing on this. If Wilma yeah. had gone upstairs and found this person on the bed, her entire resolution, her entire redemption arc would be thwarted. She would probably go to jail, at least be arrested for kidnapping somebody. There's a lot going for it. And once we understand why she's making these decisions, the stakes just keep increasing. And we look back at this moment and we think, okay, Mm -hmm. like what an impossible choice you just made. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, she's banking on the idea of psychological manipulation Mm -hmm. of her toward toward the detective. Okay, so
1: to back it up now is like the crisis, Mm -hmm. best bad choice or reconcilable goods, because it feels best bad choice to me. That's a huge, huge, huge risk the opposite end of that choice so we know that one of the choices is well i guess risking getting caught here right and not only if she if wilma finds tom upstairs probably not only is she going to get arrested for kidnapping but she's going to be probably the primary suspect why would you have the husband who is considered a primary suspect up in the room whatever it is so that's one side of it and then i guess what is the equal negative consequence of the opposite choice
0: what I'm thinking in the background while you're while you're talking through this is like spoiler alert. You're meant to think it's Tom on mm-hmm. the bed. Mm-hmm. It's not Tom. Not Tom. Okay. It's Not Tom. And so that who is it? Con, it's Len. It's her. Okay. It's her husband inhabiting Catherine's body, <laughs> which is like it sounds so crazy, but it works in this book, and it, it it's really really well done. Okay, hold on, and hold on, she, hold on, hold on. Yeah. So
1: it's <laughs> Catherine's body on the bed,
0: and yeah. Len is in it. So if Wilma like went upstairs, upstairs, she would not be finding today. Tom. She would be finding She would Catherine. be finding, <laughs> <she> <laughs> be finding <laughs> Catherine. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's huge. huge. That's a, it's huge. Yeah. And so the, the, but you don't understand this until like 75% of the way through the book. Okay. And so you look back at this moment and yes, we're meant to think it's Tom, which there's already all kinds of questions and crises and all of these. But yeah. once you understand that it's not at all what it seems. Yes, it's even more because how can she explain that? How can she be? She can't looking for Catherine and Catherine's yeah. upstairs, right? And then
1: it sounds like Wilma with that whole thing. Why she'd be willing to take the risk of Wilma even searching it is because the opposite choice is to let Len inhabiting Wil- Catherine's body get away, which will lead to more deaths, which is what she's trying to prevent.
0: Yes. And Catherine ultimately, I mean, the implication is that Catherine will ultimately die if Len is inhabiting her. Yes. Yes. But yes, if I mean, she's banking on the fact that Wilma will not go upstairs and search. But yes, she did. But that's the whole thing. Risking that is worth it because the opposite
1: choice is that Len gets away, which is worse to her. That is crazy. Okay, (laughs) So good. Then the resolution is everything that happens post-climax. So basically, she and she's after you say the climax is her inviting Wilma to search the house. Wilma thinks about it, does not completely lower mm-hmm. her guns about her suspicions about Casey, but decides to leave. Wilma leaves and then Casey goes upstairs to
0: find unnamed person tied on the bed. <laughs> exactly. Whom we're yeah. meant to think is is Tom. Because Tom I right. think he I think she actually the word him is there, which is accurate. Right. Not a lie. Right. Right. I, it's oh, my gosh. Great.
1: So clever again. I guess it's always manipulating us, right? this like, we yes, we, exactly. We'll make false assumptions all the time. Yeah.
0: This um, is why it's so complicated with thrillers to have these conversations about scene level goals. And I'm so glad yeah. that you hadn't read this because yes, yes. hearing your perspective of how you interpreted this chapter versus what it looks like when you're looking at So back, interesting. Yes. Yeah. And as a writer, you've got to think about this. You have to think about what the reader is looking at. You've got to think about what you want them to think. you got to think about what's actually happening. Well, that's why, like, I almost didn't want to read the whole thing because I knew that you had.
1: So I was like, this will be better if you don't. Yeah, Yeah, the last line is, we're running out of time. I say, now tell me what you did to Catherine. So why would you think it's Catherine? Ah, it's so good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really. Yeah. See, obviously, I'm very excited to read this.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's really good. It's a good one to analyze for sure.
1: Okay, well, that brings us to the end of the scene
0: analysis. Did you have any other big notes that you made about this that you wanted to share with listeners? The only other note I want to say is just the number of twists in here (laughs) is more than usual. And I think it works because the story is incredibly complex. But the way that he has structured it with the now and the later and the dual timelines and then forcing everything together. This wouldn't have worked had it been chronological. I think it would not have been as suspenseful. And I think that it would have been not as good of a story to absorb Mm -hmm. because we wouldn't have known about looking back stakes and what this moment actually meant. It loses some impact. And so we know that something is going on in this moment. We understand that Catherine is in danger. And then we go and we meet Catherine in the next couple chapters. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of built in suspense there. Like, I won't spoil anything. With this, but I think most people have heard of White Lotus at this point. Yep. That's another classic way of doing this. It's like we see that someone has died. We don't know who. And then we go back in time. And the whole time we're wondering who's going to die. So that is Uh, so, so, so interesting. So I just finished White Lotus the first season. Me too, last
1: night. Ah, there you (laughs) go. But I said, like, that's the whole thing that was so interesting because it's classified as a drama. And I was like, it is a drama. It's a mystery. Yeah, but I was like, but it's it really is more of a mystery. But the reason for that is because of the first thing that we see is a body if you put a body on the first page i think you have someone even if the story is not very good like, <laughs> i still wanted to figure it out well this is and like of course like white lotus is getting you know a ton of accolades and someone mm-hmm. love it me personally i the, the characters drove me mad like i oh they're got, so annoying they're oh so they're awful so each awful other and the very little that's endearing was, and it's just, Oh, yeah. it's so, it's so cringe. There were certain conversations that I was just getting super uncomfortable. I don't want to keep I going through this, but I have, but same I need same. to figure out what's happening to this yeah. body.
0: But I think that was the whole point is it, it was you the uncomfortable.
1: Point. It was the and, point.
0: And that's one of the fun things about that that's also subverts expectations, right? Yeah. Like you think you're going to be watching a show about a hotel and you don't right. really know what's going on and then you're just deeply uncomfortable the whole time. It's but, kind of the uh, same thing with this book. You're like just deeply just, uncomfortable the whole time. And it's just when
1: you think you can't get more uncomfortable,
0: you get more yep, uncomfortable. It gets worse.
1: Yes. That's a great thing that you pointed out there. And I love that you did. And I think that that's something for writers. Do you have any tips for them? Because dual timelines is something that I love as a reader. Plotting it as a writer, is, it's quite challenging. And it's really important that they dovetail. One cannot work separately from the other. Eventually, they have to feed each other into mm-hmm. the one story timeline. So when you're helping writers figure out how to work a system like that, do you have any tips or suggestions for plotting it or just structuring it or executing it? absolutely. Yeah.
0: So it's always start simple and then make it more complex. So Mm -hmm. in this story, if I was like, (laughs) if this ever happened, oh, my God, I'd die coaching Riley Sager on his next book, that would be incredible. (laughs) You know, this is the kind of thing where you'd write out the entire chronological timeline, like just short sentences. You know, if you use the inside outline by Jenny Nash, like Mm it's my favorite tool. She's Mm -hmm. amazing. Read her books. But you'd start off with doing an inside outline of the entire chronological as that happens in real life. So we'd, spoiler alert, start off with a year ago, Casey killing Len and why. And then we'd move into meeting Catherine. We'd move into You know, what she's hiding, meeting Boone, like all these other characters and ending with Mm -hmm. her killing herself to save the world and then coming back to life because Catherine saves her and then sitting there at the edge of the lake and making sure this never happens again to anybody else because Mm -hmm. Len still inhabits the lake. It's the kind of the ending twist. Okay, And then go in to make it complicated. But you have to know what happened when in order to understand the logic of everything. And then it's like, if you're playing with now and later, which is pretty classic, six months ago versus what's going on at this current moment, to your point, you can't just randomly kind of plug these things in. You want to have it feed so that both timelines are moving forward, but the, the later one is catching up with the current. Mm-hmm. And they do make sense when they're next to each other. Not in a way that's going to be logical to the reader at the time, but when right. they're looking back, we understand why this was shown to us at this juncture. Perfect. So it's all intentionality. It's like, it's not just random. And do you
1: think that there is an ideal percentage that the storylines start to come together? Or do
0: you think that that can vary per book? I think it varies heavily per book. It really, really depends on on what you're trying to accomplish. The whole goal of this book is confusion. Okay. There's no chapter numbers. There's yep. missing page numbers. I don't know if you noticed that. There's, I didn't there's notice no that. <laughs> There's all kinds of things that just make it kind of hard to track what's going on. And that's all that's all very intentional.
1: It's so smart. (laughs)
0: Little, little, little details, little
1: details. (laughs) Everything is purpose, though. I think that's the point. Like everything is intentionally planted the way that it's planted to manipulate, to make us look somewhere and then doubt it and then look another place. So all of that's great. You clearly know this genre very well. I love it. Absolutely, (laughs) yes. And I am so grateful, not only that you put this book in front of me, because now it's one that obviously I'm (laughs) I'm really excited to read. I can't wait to hear what you think. No, no, it's going to be great. Yes. But also, it's just so fun getting to do this with you and know you more and get to know you more. And, you you know, I can't wait to share this with everyone. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for coming back for another first chapter deep dive analysis on Lint Match. As you can tell, I'm really excited to finish The House Across the Lake. I can't get over all of the twists and turns that happened on a scene level and a big picture level, which came out, of course, in this episode in my conversation with Sam. There was so much to learn, not only from this book, but Riley Sager as a writer. If you were writing thrillers, or have mystery and suspense elements in your story. If you're enjoying Litmatch and you haven't had a chance to read or review the show, I would be so grateful if you took a quick one or two minutes to do so. This is my best chance at reaching more writers like you who are struggling with the submission process or want to learn more about the publishing industry and how to grow their writing craft. If you have any recommendations for the show, I'd also love to hear from you. You can always email me at abigailkperry.com at gmail.com I hope you'll join me next week for another episode of lit match I genuinely cannot wait to hear when you sign with your dream literary agent and I'm equally enthusiastic to celebrate your book when it comes out